everybody doing? How you doing? I'm doing all right. My name is Bill Reeser. I'm the pastor of Encounter, and I want to welcome everyone out to the greatest place to be on a Friday night. Hey, whether you're joining us online or right here at the Father's House in the sanctuary, we want to welcome you out to just an awesome ministry of Encounter. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get on. We're going to continue with our service. Father, thank you so much for just an awesome night of worship. Thank you for just your great plan of forgiveness for us, that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, there is grace and there's forgiveness. We thank you that, that it was your plan all along to forgive anyone who would trust in your son, Jesus Christ, and I pray that that would be who we are, that that would just permeate in our innermost being, and we would leave this place knowing that we are forgiven and that we are loved by an almighty God. I pray that your word would not come back void. It would accomplish everything that you intended it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So my sister called me one time from New York City, and she told me, she says, uh, Bill, I'm really having a bad day. Matter of fact, my day is so bad that while I was driving my car, Jesus fell off my cross. And she asked me for my opinion on the matter, and I told her, it might not be as bad as you think, Seeing Jesus come off your cross is actually a good thing. Now, you might be in trouble if he jumps back on your cross. So you may want to leave him off your cross. Now, last week, the world celebrated Easter weekend. Catholics called it Holy Week. And Christians everywhere around the world refer to Easter Sunday as Resurrection Sunday. Both are great descriptions of Easter. And whatever we call this past weekend... If these three words don't ring loud and clear in your head and in your heart, then you really missed what Easter is all about. If these three words don't liberate your life with unspeakable joy, passion, purpose, power, grace, gratitude, then you might not know what Easter is all about. Of course we celebrate what Jesus accomplished. Of course we understand that what he did, no one in the history of mankind has ever done. Of course we celebrate his victory over the cross, sin, and death. We celebrate the fact that he took our sin, he became our sin, he defeated our sin, so that we can be free, so that we can live forever and ever with a loving God who loves us, no matter what. But if these three words don't permeate to the core of who we really are and what our real identity is, then everything that Jesus did for us at Easter will just be an intellectual acknowledgement instead of a life-transforming eternal transaction that changes us and sets us free. If we don't act upon the knowledge of what Jesus did for us, then Jesus may still be on the cross for you as the suffering Jesus instead of the conquering victorious Jesus. And if your Jesus is a suffering, defeated Jesus without resurrection power, then your life most likely will be void of that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And all that changes when you can say these three words. All that changes when you can say what Easter made possible. Our relationships get better when we can say them. Our recoveries take on new meaning when we can say these three words. Everything great and awesome that God wants to do in our lives starts with us being able to say with convictions the three words that Easter made possible. 
When life gets hard, these three words will help you put things in perspective and lead you down a path of victory. When people oppose you and do horrific things to you, these three words will help guard your heart so that you can retaliate with the same three words that Easter made possible. When you're depressed, derailed, disillusioned, disheartened, displaced, and flat out dejected, these three words will be your antidote for survival, healing, and victory. And as followers of Jesus, when someone asks you, how you doing? Your answer should always be these three words. When someone asks you who you are, your answer should always be these three words. And while he is risen, is awesome and our declaration to a world that needs hope, they're not the three words I'm talking about. He is risen is the reason why we can say the three words that change everything. Now, if you've not fully grasped what Jesus Christ has done for you, then he is risen. He is risen to others and even to you internally will just mean a big so what. You see, once you fully grasp what Jesus did for you, and then you respond to what he's done for you by believing Repenting, turning, and turning to him and receiving and surrendering your life and will to Jesus Christ. The only three words that you're going to say over and over, anytime, anywhere, to whomever you come across is, I am forgiven. The three words that Easter makes possible through Jesus Christ are, I am forgiven. How you doing? I'm forgiven. How's your recovery going? I'm forgiven. Myra, how you doing? I'm forgiven. Easter to me is he is risen, therefore I am forgiven. He rose from the dead, therefore I'm forgiven. He defeated sin, death, and the grave, therefore I'm forgiven. And you're forgiven. Friends, if we live dead lives, we've missed the resurrection life Jesus died and came back to life for. So don't just focus on the resurrection, but how your life is brought back from dead things, how you're brought back from the grave. So I want to tell you, I want to challenge you today, be the chain-breaking, grave-robbing, death-defeating, overcomer God brought you back from the grave from, because that's who you are. He's alive, and so are you. And because he lives, so do you live, the abundant life that he died for. Listen, if the grave can't stop you, who can? What can? Nothing can stop you. Easter is your reminder of that victory that you inherited because of what he's done. Easter is your wake-up call to realize how much you've been forgiven. Easter was never meant to be a holy huddle for Christians to celebrate, but an invitation to respond to what he's done for you and live the life that Jesus died for. That's what we're called to do. We celebrate Easter because it represents not only what Jesus did, but it revealed God's great plan of forgiveness. Easter for me doesn't come just once a year. Every day is Easter for me without the chocolate. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done when I didn't want anything to do with him. And that's why I celebrate Easter 
because of what he did for me when I had my back turned on him, when I was running my own life, when I thought I was God. That's what Easter's all about. Look what it says in Romans 5, 6 through 11. Because this whole night and the next two weeks are all about God's great plan of forgiveness. It says this, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates. Notice that there's an S and not a D at the end of the word demonstrates, which means it's still in effect for today. So what Jesus did over 2,000 years ago still applies today. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now let me just, as some of you are looking at and you say, well, I'm not sure if I'm in the category of a sinner. And don't look at the word sinner as something that you do, but in this text, and if you study the Bible, sinners were referred to as people who have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, we're still sinners, but we're not called sinners once we accept Jesus Christ. We're actually called saint. You may not act like a saint, but you're called a saint who still sins and still needs grace for your sins, but it's not who you are. See the difference? But the Bible says all of us have fallen short. All of us have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Now listen very carefully. When you look at that scripture, and you study it over and over again, and you should, because it's a great scripture, there's only one conclusion that you can come up with, and that is that God forgave you when you didn't deserve it. Nothing you can do can earn God's forgiveness. There's not a single thing that you can do to earn God's forgiveness. It was God's goodness that he became a man and died on the cross because it was his mission to forgive you and to forgive me. It was the whole mission of God through Jesus Christ to forgive because Jesus said in John 3:16 and 17 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his world into his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him the world might be saved it was God's mission that whosoever will irrespective of background or what they have done or the depth or depravity of their sins, that anyone who would come to him, that God would forgive them. This is incredible mercy when you really study what Jesus Christ has done for you. When you really look at what Christ has done, a crown of thorns placed on his head that were driven into his skull and then a mock robe placed around him. It was his whole mission to forgive them. I can think of a lot of things that were done to people, but I can't think of one single act that was more depraved than that was done to Jesus Christ. The ultimate act of depravity by humankind to take God's son and mock him, slap him, 
spit in his face, to punch him, to whip him, to tear off his skin by whips that were laced with rock, metal, and glass, to take God's son and nail him to a cross, and once nailed to that cross, to continue to mock him by dividing his clothing, actually wagging their heads and tongues at him as he died simply because he loved them. But even on the cross, the first words to come out of the mouth of Jesus was, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. As they were driving the nails into his feet and hands, he was asking the Father to forgive them. Now you may be thinking, what's a few nails into his hands and feet? But there was an incredible amount of torture up to this point that Isaiah 52, 14 describes what Jesus looked like as a result of the torture that he had to endure. It said this, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man. In addition to the incredible physical pain he had to endure, he experienced the pain of rejection and was overwhelmed with sorrow, not to mention being publicly humiliated. Many of you here know what that's like, but not to this degree. Isaiah 53, 3 through 6 says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. So if you think that Jesus is, doesn't understand what you're going through, he doesn't understand sorrow, grief, and pain, he does. At the deepest level, Jesus understands better than anybody your deepest hurts, your deepest sorrows, and your most painful, painful experiences. Yet, Scripture says, it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced, don't miss this, for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, all of us, including you and me, have strayed away. And we've left God's paths to follow our own. All of us. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Jesus paid the price for you and for me. So here is Jesus Christ who holds everything in the palm of his hand. And he chooses to forgive. What would you do if you were God? Created the world? Hold everything in the palm of your hand? Look down at all the mockers and the pain that they're inflicting on you? And now they're dividing your clothing. I suppose it would take just an incredible amount of grace not to curse the whole thing right there and just destroy everything. But it was his mission to forgive. It was his mission to forgive you, and it was his mission to forgive me. Incredible mercy when you think about it. Incredible forgiveness. It's because of that that you're here tonight. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for his mission. If God took an account of your sins, you wouldn't be here. If God took an account of the bad thoughts you had this week, who would be here? Would there be any hope before God? 
Of course not. It's his mission to forgive. And he constantly forgives. He constantly cleanses. He constantly wipes the slate clean every single day because his mercies are new. Thank God that where sin abounds, even that much more grace abounds. God's got more grace than the totality of every sin that you'll ever commit in your entire life. Thank God that there's no more condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Thank God that his grace declares us not guilty. Thank God that his mercies are new every day. Thank God that we're saved by grace, forgiven by grace, healed by grace, and set free by the grace of God. Anybody here grateful for the grace of God? Where would we be without the grace of God? You clap. Maybe I helped you do that, but why aren't you giving out that grace? Hello. Oh, yes, he did. Why aren't you giving it out? Why are you just a grace recipient and not a grace dispenser? In fact, as we can all agree that forgiveness, and it's true, can be one of the most difficult paths to follow. It's a hard path. It's not an easy path. Yet it's one of the most crucial because unforgiveness has the power to destroy your life. Unforgiveness will stop any progress you've made in recovery and keep you in bondage. Unforgiveness locks you out of everything good that God wants to do in your life. I know of no other sin that can wreck your life like unforgiveness. Now listen to me very carefully. The unforgiving person can never recover from their hurts, their habits, their hang-ups, their compulsions, their sins, because the promises of recovery are linked to obedience in the area of forgiveness. And you say, what? Where's that at? Well, go to Mark 11, 22, 25 if you have your Bibles. There's some Bibles in the seats. You should be bringing your Bibles with you. And it starts out by this. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. It's a great parable. He says, have faith in God. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it'll be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. This is incredible. This is a great promise until he tags a condition to it. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Jesus is saying, above all, have faith in God. Trust God, believe God, have faith in God. And when you do, you're going to be able to speak to the mountains in your life. You're going to be able to speak to them. And those mountains have to go in Jesus' name. Now, the context of this are mountains are anything that keeps you from being all that God wants you to be. Mountains are obstacles that, that keep you stuck. Mountains are the hurts that were inflicted on us by other people. Mountains are the fears that we have that tend to paralyze us. Mountains are the pileup of shame and guilt that has bound us up for years. Mountains are the result of bitterness that we carry. And Jesus tells us by faith, we can speak to those mountains that have kept us in bondage and say be removed in Jesus' name. And those mountains have to go. Those mountains have to be removed in Jesus' name. Just as long as you don't doubt in your heart that what you say is going to happen. And when you stand praying, those mountains have to go in Jesus' name. Incredible promise, but he tags a condition to it. But when you pray, 
If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins too. So if you want to hold on to your grudges, you're not going to have any mountains removed in your life. And you're not going to have your sins forgiven. And you're not going to recover from your hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And instead of speaking to mountains, you're going to be climbing mountains the rest of your life. And it'll wear you out. And that's no way to live. Because Jesus Christ died so that the mountains in your life can be removed in Jesus' name. You have authority in your prayers. You have authority because greater is he that lives in you than he that lives in this world. And God wants you to exercise that authority against the mountains in your life. He wants you to have that victory. Now, it would be safe to say that Peter, good old Peter, more than any other of the other disciples, needed Jesus to teach and demonstrate to him personally what forgiveness really is. So Jesus is teaching his disciples how to resolve conflict. This is a big thing. This is a great teaching, by the way, and most people don't understand this teaching at all. I've worked in places. I've been a part of national ministries that have no idea how to apply this teaching to their lives. And it's Matthew 18, 15 through 18. And it says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. Do you see God's plan? When someone does something to you, that you're to go directly to that person. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, go to Facebook and tell the world. No, it doesn't say that. If you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and copy and paste 200 of your best friends on Facebook. No, it doesn't say that. If you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you, go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. That's when you come to the church. That's when you come to the pastor. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. It just simply means to just don't have anything to do with that person. That's all that's saying. And we're going to do, a, I want to encourage you to come to our encounter trainings that we have the first Sunday of every month. And in this encounter training, you're going to hear about more in our announcements, but we're going to do a teaching on this as well as step study orientation. And real quick, when you go to someone and someone offends you, if you don't go directly to that person and you go to any place else or anybody else, you've committed the sin of gossip. Now, when you go to a person, you don't have to, it's not, it's not about who's going to win or it's not about who's right. And just one of the things real quick that we're going to talk about in the training, and just, just a quick tea, we don't have time to get into the whole thing, but I've been in, in, a, in a lot of Matthew 18 situations. And I, I actually love them when they're done right. And when someone approaches me and says, Bill, you've done something, I've got to do a couple of things. One is I've got to stop. I've got to listen. I've got to hear what they have to say. I have to pray about it. I have to own what I need to own. I have to ask for as well as give out forgiveness. I've got to be a peacemaker because the Bible says as much as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. And when I'm in doubt as to what to do in that situation, I always tend to lean on the side of grace. If you go that route, your Matthew 18s and resolving conflict with other people will always be blessed by God. The problem is people just don't know how to do that. They just don't know how to follow the biblical pathway from Matthew 18. 
And so Jesus wraps up his whole teaching on how to resolve conflict with other people. And Peter was like, uh, that sounds great, Jesus, but uh, how many times do I really have to forgive other people because I got some EGR people in my life, extra grace required. I got some HMP people, high maintenance people in my life, and they're sort of driving me crazy, and I keep on forgiving them, but they keep on messing up my life. How many times do I got to forgive those people? How many times? Because they're really wearing me out. And then the very next scripture, Jesus responds to Peter. Watch what it says first. Then Peter came to him and asked the Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? And he was trying to be, trying to say, check me out. I'm going to forgive him seven times. I'm bad. I'm the baddest man alive. That's what he's saying. No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven, which really means if you're trying to add it up, don't try and add it up. Jesus was making a point that it was an, an indefinite number. You forgive as many times as possible. And you know why? Because love unseals the lid of how many times we need to forgive others. It really does. And Jesus went on to say, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. Now, don't look at this as a king with money. Look at this as our relationship with God and other people. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. And then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and he forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him just a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and he demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little bit more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. You know, unforgiveness can bring torture on your life. And that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. And some of you may be thinking, as, just as I'm reading this, boy, Bill, that really sounds harsh. It really sounds like God's really a judging God. You know, and I ran across an article by Francis Chan this week, and it was such a neat article. It, it said this, if you think a loving God wouldn't judge, have you read the Bible? And it says this, as morality becomes more and more subjective, the concept of judgment becomes increasingly offensive. This means that the, the 
determination of what is right or wrong becomes located within the, the individual instead of an ultimate objective standard of right and wrong, which is none other than God. Over time, the very concept of judgment diminishes and ushers a culture into moral chaos. Popular Christian author and speaker Francis Chan issues an urgent plea for us not to ignore God's judgment. Chan asserts that in our modern culture, no one really believes in judgment anymore, not even many Christians. The common mantra that is heard is that a loving God would not judge people. The problem with this thinking is that we barely get out of page two of scripture before we run right into God's judgment. We read about God killing whole people groups in ways that would make anyone pause in sober reflection. As hard as this biblical reality may be, the answer is not to find the wrong in scripture, but to find the wrong in our own human hearts. Chan puts it this way, whenever he disagrees with scripture, he just assumes he is wrong. Practically, this truth should serve as an important motivator for unity within the church. Yes, there are godly and ungodly ways to judge. And the church must discern with clarity and conviction when she displays God's judgment. But what the church must not do is to be quiet about God's judgment, and I won't be. So I have to ask you again, how long are you going to stay in your prison of revenge, retribution, hate, unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment being tortured. Now, if I say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and unforgiveness is in my heart, now understanding that the whole plan of God through Jesus Christ is to forgive, how can I say that I'm walking with God? Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? There's a man in the Bible, and his name was Jonah. And lately, there's been a lot of Bible studies about Jonah coming out. And good, good for them that they can, you can find the good in Jonah. And there's a lot of good to be found in Jonah and in the story of Jonah. But Jonah's life does not end well. It's a tragedy. The story of Jonah does not end well. I can't get into the whole story, but Jonah was simply a guy that decided to go the other way on this issue of forgiveness. God told him to go a group of people and, and call them to repentance. And Jonah, like most of us, had an argument with God. Basically, he was telling God, I know you. I know how merciful you are. I know how forgiving you are. I know what you're going to do. And the reason Jonah knew that, because he had experience. He's experienced the mercy of God. And if I go to these people and preach repentance, these people who have opposed you, they may actually repent. You may actually forgive them. And Jonah said, no way. There's no way that I'm going. Ultimately, the end result of unforgiveness was Jonah, for Jonah was he was plunged into deep despair. He was on a ship that was being attacked. There were storms coming on the ship. It's amazing how you get affected by someone else's unforgiveness. How other people who are carrying bitterness will wreak havoc on your life. Eventually, the people on the ship realized that it was Jonah rebelling against God, and they threw him over. Now, you know the story. Falls into the ocean. Big fish swallows him up for three days. And then he cries out to God for mercy. He comes to his senses. And God rescues him once again. Jonah was in essence saying, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. I just got to do it. Because I, I can't live in this deep despair anymore. I need to get out of this fish. I need to get out of this, out of this pit. 
And God tells Jonah to do what he's asked him to do because it really is a life or death issue. But Jonah says yes, but he moves into what's called reluctant obedience. Reluctant obedience for Jonah was, I'm going to go out and preach your message of repentance. But as for me, offering the same forgiveness, I think I'm just going to keep that to myself. For us today, reluctant obedience looks like this. We know we need to make amends and offer forgiveness to those who have hurt us. So we approach each person, maybe with a letter, a phone call, or we go see him in person, and we just say, I forgive you for what you've done to me. I forgive you for how you hurt me, attacked me, took advantage of me, physically, emotionally, relationally, sexually, maybe even mentally abused me. I forgive you for killing my child. I forgive you for it all. But the person operating in reluctant obedience may say that verbally, but deep down they're saying, I forgive you, but God's going to burn you in hell for what you did to me. I forgive you, but God's going God's to make you pay for what you did to me. It's the spouse that says, I, I forgive you, but I'm still going to divorce you. But I forgive you. Listen, this is exactly what was in Jonah's heart as he walked into Nineveh, knowing in his heart that the mercy of God was going to come. And when he was done with his message, he actually went and sat on top of a hill And he waited for God to judge them, knowing that the mercy of God was going to come upon them. And Jonah sat on a hill waiting for the judgment of God. And there are many people who have gone halfway in forgiveness. And you come to a service like this, or you're maybe watching online, and you forgive them, but you're waiting for God to judge them. And you're looking for justice, hoping that God will punish those who have hurt you. And Jonah has this ridiculous, unwinnable argument with God. This is, I'm so grateful that this is actually in Scripture. Check this out in Jonah 4, 1 through 3. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Check out what his complaint was. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful. You are a merciful and compassionate God slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. I know that about you. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I had predicted will not happen. Like I said, this is a life or death issue that we're dealing with, and how you respond is your choice. David Siemens, a counselor, that Philip Yancey quotes, says this, many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among Christians are these. The failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. And the failure to give out that unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated the level of our emotions. Corey Ten Boom told a story of not being able to forgive a wrong that had been done to her. She had forgiven the person, but she kept rehashing the incident so she couldn't sleep. Finally, Corey cried out to God for help 
and putting the problem to rest. Her help came in the form of a kind Lutheran pastor. Corey wrote, to whom I confessed my failure after two sleepless weeks. Up in the church tower, he said, nodding out the window is a bell, which is rung by the pulling of a rope. You see this in a lot of old churches. But you know what? After the sexton lets go of the rope, the bell keeps on swinging. First ding, then dong. Slower and slower until there's a final dong. And then it stops. I believe the same thing is true of forgiveness. When we forgive, we take our hand off the rope. But if we've been tugging at our grievances for a long time, we shouldn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming for a while. But they're just the ding-dongs of the old bell slowing down. And so it proved to be. There were a few more midnight reverberations, a couple of dings when the subject came up in my conversations, but the force, which was my willingness in the matter, had gone out of them. They came less and less often, and at last stopped altogether. We can trust God not only above our emotions, but also above our thoughts. So let me ask you a question as we close out the service. Who's living rent-free in your mind that's still causing you pain? That you haven't evicted in Jesus' name? Who needs to be evicted from your head that you're still allowing to hurt you? By you not forgiving them and letting them go? And so this week, I want you to pray this simple prayer. All week. It's in your outline. Just take it home with you. And all week, I want you to write down names of people that the Holy Spirit's going to bring to your mind that you need to forgive. And next week, we're going to come here and there'll be a cross. And at the end of the service, we're going to nail every single name of every single person that you need to forgive. This week was God's great plan of forgiveness. Next week, is how we're supposed to respond to it. And God wants us to respond to it in the same way he's responded to us. Let's pray. Pray this prayer not only tonight, but all week. Father, bring to mind the people who have hurt me, abused me, and did something wrong to me that I have not completely forgiven, that still live rent-free in my head, Soften my heart and lead me to a place where I will choose the freedom of forgiveness and move out of the bondage of bitterness by forgiving every person on my list from my heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.